Okay, we've got some audio here. I don't think this is my first Ash Wednesday, but it might be. And it's certainly my first one leading. Um, so one of the things that I asked myself immediately was, what does Lent mean? Um, and I didn't know the answer to that question. I don't know if you do. But um, I kind of want to talk a little bit about Ash Wednesday and Lent and then get into just a couple points um, to share in this short homily with you. And then we'll keep, we'll keep moving. Um, through some of this precious liturgy, but um, so Lent is the time traditionally between um, it's the run up to Easter. It's the 46 days, but when you subtract the Sundays, it's 40 days. Uh, the Sundays are to be sort of a break along the way um, of of penitence and abnegation leading to Easter. So um, starts on Ash Wednesday, right, the day after what Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, day of reveling and celebrating, and then and then starting on the pathway, the long pathway leading up to Black Friday and then Easter. Um, and the word Lent uh, comes from the Old English Lenten, which means spring. And what happened is that traditionally the church would, would, would celebrate, would walk through this season, this 40 days of, of denying self, identifying with Jesus, asking in a really penetrating, focused way as a church, what are we holding on to that's not going to contribute toward um, our lives here in Christ? And what's gonna, what's gonna, what are we holding on to that's going to vanish um, in the life to come? What do we need God to strip us of? A time of introspection, um, both individually and communally. And um, they would celebrate it during the spring, of course, because it was the lead up to Easter. And so the word... Lent, meaning spring, just became the word for this time where the church would um, would embrace this sort of um, self-denial. So, so that's that's Lent, and this is the formal beginning, Ash Wednesday, of that time. Um, just two brief thoughts tonight in this little homily here for you to ponder. The first is ashes. I just want to think on ashes. We're going to impose the ashes on those who want it to be imposed upon on your head, just as a reminder of of, a, of some things, of our mortality, of what we're living for, of maybe what we shouldn't be living for, of where we're headed, of what we're made of. So ashes, first thing. Um, we're about to impose them on your forehead. Why? Well, really because it's a reminder of where we came from. We came from the earth, and, uh, and we're headed back to the earth, and we will turn to, to dust. So, so really... Dust is dust or ashes is what we're going to be um, wearing tonight as a reminder of that. It's, it's what we're made of, but we're not just made of dust. Um, God made us from the earth. It's uh, part of his perfect plan, and then he breathed his own life into us, and he set us apart from the earth, made us his own special creatures in his image, life bearers. Um, but a prod- what, what was not supposed to happen is we were not supposed to go back to the earth, but we do. And that's empirical proof of the fact that something's gone terribly wrong. So we, we all die, and so we can tend to think that that's normal, but it's not normal. It's not, it's not human to die. Um, Christ was the only normal human, also fully divine, but um, he shows us the way to life. He shows us the way to the Father, but we're, we live in a dissonance, and so we die. So we go back to the earth. Um, and as I said, death is a reminder of our rebellion 
and of our going our own way. Um, Lamentations 1.9. Um, Lamentations 1.9, it says that it's talking about, and we'll talk much more about this. I'll preach on Lamentations 1 on Sunday. But Lamentations 1.9 is talking about the fall. It's documenting and also giving powerful expression to the, the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came and sieged and then destroyed the temple and the city and sent Judah into exile in Babylon. And 1.9 says, She, Israel, Jerusalem, took no thought of her end. She became, therefore, defiled, is what it says. Um, so she put herself in a position, God's people, to be destroyed and judged by, because of her sinfulness by God himself through the Babylonians. Um, because it says she took no thought of her, of her end. It's an interesting line. How can, how can we, how can taking no thought of our end lead to lives of where we're just missing the mark? Lives of degradation, lives of living for things that aren't going to last. It does. When we don't think about where we're headed, about the fact that we are headed to dust and why, and ask ourselves, why? What is it that I've done? Who am I? What position have I put myself in? It leads to lives of meaninglessness. Um, and so this is really a time to think about the fact that we have this, in a sense, mark of the curse on us, but it's also going to be um, dust or ashes in the form of a cross. And so it's something that Christ has actually gone down into and changed for us and redeemed for us. So we, have, we are a people not without hope. Um, so that's the first thing is ashes. The second thing I just want to talk about for a few minutes is the curse, which, of course, ashes really point to. Um, but the ashes remind us in this time of, of Lent, this time of um, focusing on, Lord, what is it that I'm embracing day to day that doesn't please you? W- what's in my heart that I'm afraid to show you and other people, but you see? What am I afraid to look at? Lord, you've come for everything. You've come to set me free. What, what is it during this time, these 40 days of Lent, that I can open up about? Um, God takes our situation seriously, our pain our estrangement from each other and from him, our sin. Um, he takes it so seriously that we, we die. I mean, that's, that's how seriously God takes it. Um, and when I think about the curse, and when I think about death, and when I think about how seriously God takes our sin, the first place I go to is Genesis 3.15. Um, so in Genesis 3, as most of you know, our, our first parents who represent us, or represented us, in, if we are in Christ now, they... Um, they sinned, and God comes to them to reconcile them to himself. He comes to them to seek out relationship, and he begins to ask them, where are you? And the first person he goes to is the woman, and then he asks the man. That, you know, the woman blames, um, excuse me, excuse me, that's not right. He goes to the man first, and he blames the woman, <laughs> right? And nothing has changed. I mean, my wife and I, I mean, I'm the first to blame her. You know, it's your fault. Um, hopefully something has changed a little bit, but man. It's so striking. So goes to Adam. Adam passes the buck to Eve. Goes to Eve. Eve passes the buck to the serpent. And then it goes back out. It's sort of like the structure of the curse is sort of like a, um, a bullseye, or a, rather a, a target, where you have the man addressed first on the outer ring, and then the woman's addressed, and then the snake's in the middle. And he gets like the hot core of the curse. And then God goes back out to curse the woman. Because you've done this, this is what's going to happen to you. And at the core of who you are, this is what's going to happen to you. 
and then he finishes with man. So man's the outer ring, and then woman, and then the serpent in the middle. And that's Genesis 3.15 is the bullseye of the target. It's the hot core of the curse. And in that hot core of the curse, surprisingly, God doesn't just say, because he told him, he said, in the, in, in the day that you eat of this fruit and disobey me and go your own way, you've severed yourself from me, from life itself, so what are you going to do but die? Like, what is a tree limb going to do when it cuts itself off from the trunk but just dies? That's what happens. So you're expecting instant death, but instead God, you're expecting him to go, here's the curse, here's why you're screwed. Sorry, end of story. That's not what he says. He inserts a promise into the middle of that curse, into the bullseye, into the hot core of the curse. He inserts a promise. And he said, and the promise is about, as most of you know, it, it uh, hinges on and, and rests upon a seed that's going to come from the woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent and that's going to start the process of the recreation of all things. It's going to reverse the curse. And, and that promise shoots, it provides the trajectory for all the rest of the Bible. It shoots throughout the entire rest of the scriptures. So the seed of the serpent, the enemy of God, and the seed of the woman are constantly on parallel track, and the seed of the serpent's constantly trying to kill the seed of the woman, always at war, throughout the rest of the scriptures. And the promised seed who's going to crush the serpent and reverse the curse is Jesus himself. It's the first promise of, of the, the evangel, the gospel. Um, he stepped, the, the surprising fact that God stepped at that moment into the curse with a promise, a promise that would actually cost him everything to keep, everything. Who could have thought then at that moment that it would? But God himself stepped into space and time and kept that forth, and he became, he took that curse that we set over all creation and, and that was set at work in us and absorbed it into himself and buried it, and then raised from the dead. Um, I think of, it, he allowed the earth to swallow him, you know, dust to dust. We, were, we will be swallowed too one day, but because he allowed the earth to swallow him and rose from it, when we look to him and identify with him by faith, we have victory over, over death just like he does with him. As, as surely as he's alive, so we. Um, and I think, when I think of, um, the sacrifice that Jesus made in this context in particular, stepping into the hot core of the curse, meeting it head on. I think of a, a great animated movie that I know the Doshes love too, and maybe some of y'all, Iron Giant. Such a good movie. Um, yeah. And uh, if, you don't, if you haven't seen it, just go buy a cheap copy at, I don't know, Half Price Books, Walmart, uh, Iron Giant. Um, it's this big iron giant robot. <laughs> That's so descriptive and so um, original. And he seems like he's going to be this monster, but actually he's got a heart of gold, but nobody else knows that except for this little boy. And he and this boy become great friends, and that's the crux of the story. Um, and the army is set out to kill him because they think that he's going to be a menace to everybody. And at the end of the movie, um, they launch a nuclear missile to kill the iron giant, to destroy him. And once you, you know, once you press the button and the, and the nuke goes up in the air, like, there's no escaping it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to kill. It's set, it's set to get to him, but he's the Iron Giant sitting there amongst all of the townspeople, and so it's going to destroy them. And so in their, in their desire to destroy this giant, this kind, 
lovely, wonderful, powerful giant, they've actually ensured their own destruction. And um, what he does is, is so beautiful. He, he takes a, a line that the boy had said to him earlier. The boy says, you go, I stay. Or you stay, I go. He's trying to keep the giant you know, back in the woods. And I'm going to go home. He says, you stay, I go. And the, and the giant, he says, you stay, me go. And he, you know, the nuclear weapon is up in the, in the stratosphere, and he, he just looks up at it, and he shoots up right up into the sky, and he, and he meets it head on up into the black space before, as it's coming down back to earth. And uh, he does it with a smile on his face. That's the last kind of last scene before he blows. And he says, Superman. But he, uh, he does it with a smile on his face. He meets this, this uh, nuke head on, doesn't deserve it. Um, it's been launched in an effort to destroy him, and he takes it on. He goes into the middle of the curse to save this boy and to save these people. And um, it's just a beautiful picture of Christ, just a wonderful picture of Christ. And I certainly didn't do it justice, so you need to go see it. But uh, he died with a smile on his face, and that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Um, he entered into the hot core of the curse, and it met something far worse than a nuclear missile. And he did it praying for us. He did it with, with you on his heart. He did it because of you, because of me. And that's one of the things with the ashes on our foreheads in this time of realizing he wouldn't have had to do that if it wouldn't have been for me. That's how seriously God takes my sin, that cross. Christ meeting that curse, Christ becoming that curse, and he was glad to do it. He was glad to do it. So what am I, what is keeping me from knowing him in intimacy? What am I keeping back from him? This is a time to ask these kind of questions um, by ourselves and together. Um, the Iron Giant uh, starts to come back together, actually, um, at the end of the movie, which is a wonderful picture of the resurrection and how you can't keep something like that down. Um, but Christ's resurrection began a new day. And I want to say this. We're living in the half-light of that new day now. What do I mean by half-light? Two things. One, it's called an already, not yet. We're in the age of Christ's reign where he's, he's paid for the curse, but we still see its effects all around us. But he is reigning, and he is made us new, but he is making us new, and still we fight against sin, and still we have this time of Lent in which we confess sin and ask for him to strip us of it. Um, so he's already come and done this new work, but um, it's not yet finalized. He hasn't come again to finish the work. So the, the fact that he's already come means that we can rejoice even in the midst of our suffering and our pain and our loss. We don't despair, but we weep. We mourn. We mourn evil. We mourn the evil inside of us. We mourn the evil around us. We work to see it overcome, but we can rejoice in doing that because he's already come and taken care of the problem, and it's our joy and pleasure to share that in the way that we live and in the way that we speak, in the way that we treat other people. So he's already come, but he's also not yet finished the work. There's evil all around us and inside of us still, even though he's conquered it. Um, so Christ's incarnation and his atoning death and his resurrection give us permission to grieve over suffering. He entered our pain and therefore and took care of it, but yet we still live in the shadow land. And so that very fact gives us permission, excuse me, to grieve over um, suffering, sin, evil. Um, and the fact that we're going to be for five weeks in Lamentations, it's just given me a chance and it'll give us more of a chance to think about the fact 
that um, this is a whole book devoted to grief and suffering in God's perfect word. And so what it says is, in a sense, if I can say this without being sacrilegious, it perfects God's perfect word. Without a book wholly devoted to grief and suffering and lamentation, lamenting the fact that things are not as they are supposed to be inside and out, God's word would not be complete and it wouldn't be perfect. But it is, in part because of this book. Um, Jesus is the one who said, blessed are those who mourn. He gives us permission and he actually tells us to mourn. Um, This disposition, this season of Lent, of waiting on the Lord um, and with each other and outsiders to whom we reach out in, in their pain is part of what it means to be God's own in this world until Christ comes again and makes all things new. Um, let's take seriously during this time what required Christ to come, what sent him to the cross, to the grave, to hell. Um, you did. I did. Let's lament over that together during this season in a particularly focused way. Um, Oscar Wilde, strangely. How else but through a broken heart may Lord Christ enter in? Um, And in this world that's racked by evil, but yet shot through with the yeast of the hope of Jesus Christ and his triumph and his lowering himself into our pain and evil and becoming that sin, Mourning is the only true route to rejoicing. The cross necessarily precedes the resurrection. Um, to quote another, from another strange person, Nietzsche, um, only where graves are is there resurrection. Okay? This is the only route to Easter. And the more that we embrace not despair, but hopeful mourning together as a body of believers with great hope looking to Christ, The blacker our Black Friday, the brighter our Easter will be. So I want to experience that with you guys um, this year in in a new way, in a way that I never have before. Um, Let's think on our sins. Let's think on the things that we're clinging to that are ash, in the end, meaningless. Let's grieve over them. Let's give them to God, both in groups, together, sharing life together, and before the Lord alone. Um, Let's have the courage to to ask God to strip us of all the habits and devotions that we're clinging to that aren't going to um, shine in the light of eternity. Lord, strip me of those things. Please, God, show me. Use others to show me. Um, Fasting is part of that. So traditionally, fasting is associated, whether it's from food, once a week, all week. I don't know if you want to go 40 days like the Lord did. I'm not that strong. Could be something else. Something that you, typically a good thing that you love, that you really enjoy, that you're saying no to. Um, it's, it's a form of suffering so that it might lead you to a greater hunger and feeding on that which will not fail, God himself. Um, so consider fasting. I'm going to be doing it every Wednesday until dinner time, just as a baseline. So if you want to join me, if you want to do it as a parish, if you want to do it with your spouse, if you have a spouse, or someone else. Um, think on your sins. I'm going to think on mine. But don't stay there. Let's let, our thought, let's let our sins lead us to think on our Savior who became sin for us and set us free. So um, we're going to enter now into just a, a quick liturgy, and then uh, Brooks is going to help me apply ashes uh, to those who, who want. So um, this
This is from the Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Dear people of God, the first Christians observed with great devotion the days of our Lord's passion and resurrection. And it became the custom of the church to prepare for them by a season of penitence and fasting. This season of Lent provided a time in which converts to the faith were prepared for holy baptism. It was also a time when those who, because of notorious sins, had been separated from the body of the faithful, were reconciled by penitence and forgiveness, and restored to the fellowship of the church. Thereby, the whole congregation was put in mind of the message of pardon and absolution set forth in the gospel of our Savior, and of the need which all Christians continually have to renew their repentance and faith. I invite you, therefore, in the name of the church, to the observance of a holy Lent, by self-examination and repentance, by prayer, fasting, and self-denial, and by reading and meditating on God's holy word. Take this time where you're saying no to something else. It might be food. To feed on God's word. To feed on God himself through that time and through prayer. Um, to serve the poor. To feed someone else. And to make a right beginning of repentance. And as a mark of our mortal nature, let us now kneel before the Lord, our Maker and Redeemer. So those who can, if you can't, please stay seated. But those who can, I would ask to kneel as, I, as you pray this prayer with me. In fact, I'm going to kneel with you. Get close to the ground from whence we came. Almighty God, you have created us out of the dust of the earth. Grant that these ashes may be to us a sign of our mortality and penitence, that we may remember that it is only by your gracious gift that we are given everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. I invite you now to just a, a time of silence, and then uh, when you're ready, we will apply ashes for those who desire.